This is an ABC podcast. Hello? Beverly Wang. If you're hearing this message, it means I've died in the culture wars. Whoa, 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 whoa. Benjamin Law. I know there's been a lot of heavy, heavy stuff happening, but you need to hang in there. But I'm just feeling so drained. Hey, hey, know. listen to me. You need to snap out of this. What will we do if our most prolific Asian-Australian writer slashy media presence, social media influencer just hangs it all up? Vila, listen. Last week, you helped me when I was feeling down. You got me into that sweet wedding on Ramsey Street, and that turned things right around for me. Okay, so check your messages. I've just sent something to you now. Okay, opening now. What is this? Cosplay ponies? Is this safe for work? Oh, I'm actually quite intrigued. Stop everything! On RN and in your podcast feed, it's time to stop everything. Hello, I'm Beverly Wang. Hi, I'm Lauren Rosewarn. And g'day, I'm Benjamin Law. Later in the show, we'll have a bit of levity for you, talking about the children's animated series My Little Pony Friendship is Magic and the unexpected fan community of bronies that sprung up around it. That's bros into ponies. But first, Lauren, you remember two weeks ago we were talking about the kerfuffle over Serena Williams' body bodysuit ban and the tutu that she wore all throughout the US Open. Ben, how could we forget that Chuli masterpiece? Mm, it was sartorial excellence. But things have escalated quite a lot since then because of what happened at the women's final of the US Open between Williams and Naomi Osaka. It started with some controversial umpiring calls, a display of anger from Serena Williams, an emotionally fraught award ceremony for the eventual champion Osaka, and a heck of a lot of commentary criticising both the umpire and Williams. In case you missed it, here's a key confrontation involving Serena Williams. It's a bit hard to hear because the crowd is booing. Serena's asking for the referee. In that audio, Serena Williams was making very clear her view that the penalties called against her were gendered. Now, speaking of escalation, Ben and Lauren, the controversy around how that final fell apart really went next level when the Herald Sun newspaper published a cartoon of Serena Williams by Mark Knight. Now, this Australian angle has now become the angle of that story because of the way Serena Williams was depicted. She's depicted jumping on a mangled tennis racket on the court, her face contorted in a grimace, a very large mouth, and inflated red lips. That depiction immediately was condemned as racist by those who saw references to historical racist depictions of African Americans in popular culture, and it was defended very strongly by the artist and his supporters, including the newspaper. Yes, because of the gamut of ways that Australia could inject itself into this story, it's with a demonstration of having no knowledge of world history whatsoever. Mm, and maybe this is just me, but I do find this defence that has been brought up that if you're ignorant of American history of racist tropes, that feels a little bit flimsy to me. I acknowledge that Mark Knight might know about Jim Crow era cartoons, but first of all, he's a professional cartoonist, and secondly, he definitely knows about them now, given the social media reaction to tell him to do his research. And since when has ignorance of historical racism passed as an excuse? Because unless I'm mistaken, ignorance doesn't excuse racism, 
it's the root cause. Yes, let's talk about this with our guests. Tracy Holmes is a journalist who focuses on sport and its wider implications. She's a broadcaster with ABC News Radio, where she hosts the sport panel pro- program, The Ticket. And Sisonke Misamang is a Perth-based South African writer focusing on race, gender and democracy. Her memoir is called Always Another Country. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Now, Tracy, Thank you. hi. Tracy, I'll start with you there because there's been a lot of commentary in Australia that's focused on Serena Williams' on court behavior, but you took a different angle in your analysis. You looked at the umpire, Carlos Ramos, and how his decision contributed to the outcome. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. I, I think I was looking at it because I watched the game. I watched this this temperature rising during the match, during the final of the US Open, and you could see it getting out of control. Um, you know, the umpire losing his uh, grip on on what was happening on court, and and Serena, of course, um, you know, both of them kind of stoking that fire. But the reaction in the US was so completely different to the reaction here, and I think that's what astounded me most. So in the US, all of the commentators that were on. ESPN, including, you know, women that had been in, in, in this kind of position. You're talking about uh, Chris Evert, one of the greats. You're talking about the reaction from Billie Jean King, um, one of the, you know, all-time legends of the sport. And even the male commentators that were saying, we haven't seen anything like this before. And they were talking about what was going on with the umpire and how the umpire was escalating this moment instead of toning it down. And, you know, the idea that uh, Serena was arguing the point when she was on the court and then expanded on that in her press conference afterwards that this is not the treatment that the men get and Serena had been in this position before she knew what it felt like and she was outraged so, and she stood her ground and argued that. Tracy just for a bit of detail there what happened was that she got um, a point docked I believe because of the coaching is that right and then it went from there? Yeah, so yeah. so this kind of coaching, if you go and watch a tennis tournament, you will see coaching from the box uh, in, in pretty much every match that you're watching. Um, and, and it's rarely picked up by the umpires, but the umpire chose to pick it up in this particular instance. So she was Dr. Point, um, and she'd already been given a prior warning. So there's the warning, then there's the docking of the point, and then she ended up um, being defaulted a game. So a game being awarded to her opponent um, at a pretty critical stage of that final and uh, the argument is that you know he could have spoken to her he, he didn't need to go that far and in so many instances particularly in the men's game when when a player is giving verbal feedback which is not pleasant uh, but but it's tolerated um, and and here Serena was saying you know you've docked me this because I'm a female not because of any other reason mm. now Tracy before we bring Sasanke into the conversation I also want to ask you you brought up before that there was a seeming divide between the US commentary and the Australian commentary and their interpretations of what happened. Do you have a theory as to what accounts for that divide? Uh, look, I do. And I, I just think that in America, you know, this idea of racism and, and what racism is, is is foremost in so many of the discussions. And you can't separate Serena Williams from racism because uh, she talks about it. She She's vocal. She, she fights against it. You know, she's been um, somebody that's worn that on her shoulders for all of her career. And mm. it's a long and lengthy and proud career. Here in Australia, I think we still don't understand what racism is and and it, it just meant that you know it was amazing it was like living in a parallel universe watching what happened there and listening to the commentary in the US and then watching programs here and listening to commentators here that just roundly came down on Serena um, it it really shocked me Sasanke, but it shouldn't have. <laughs> Sasanke when you caught up with what unfolded on the court between Serena Williams and the umpire and then afterwards that really emotional trophy ceremony with Williams and Osaka what were your thoughts? Oh my heart went out to Serena I mean my heart obviously went out to both of them but I was seething with anger as I watched um, what unfolded and really um, understood exactly what Serena was going through. It felt like a viscerally familiar moment. Um, and then, of course, watching her incredible display of generosity afterwards. Um, it was kind of heartbreaking because it felt like so many moments in which you both are having to deal with an injustice, keep your cool, demonstrate your anger, and then fix it. Yeah. Um, and that 
that that was the heartbreaking part of I think watching that whole scene unfold. Um, he, yep. Go ahead. Yeah. Here's yeah. here's women's tennis great Billie Jean King. She was talking to CNN's Christian Amanpour. So usually it's better if an umpire just quickly tells you the rules quickly because mm-hmm. you're really emotional. You're not thinking straight. So that helps you, just centers you, gets you back. He did not do that. He did not control the match. That's your job. So I think what's important that Serena was out of line. There's no question. No one's saying she was a good sport, okay? If they are, they're crazy. She was totally out of line. She knows it. She's not, she knows it. I do think there is some sexism in tennis. Even the men brought it up. Have you? McEnroe did. Uh, Murray, uh, Djokovic said they do think the men get away with more. They just do because men are outspoken when they stand up for themselves and women are looked at as hysterical. We are not. We are also speaking up. I could never speak like that when I was playing. The way that's, if I did, oh my gosh, I very rarely could talk like, you look at old interviews in the old days, we are much softer spoken, much more like Osaka is now. That's what it reminded me of back in the 70s. We had to be so careful. It's different now. Women are standing up. They're not, they're not, they don't care anymore. They're, if they're going to be outspoken and have their opinions, it's good. People have a hard time accepting it. Billie Jean King there critiquing the umpiring, but also talking about the complications of female displays of anger. Sasanka, you kind of touched on that. But on women's anger, how does it get even more complicated when it's the anger of a black woman? Well, I think what's interesting about Billie Jean's comments is that there's m- multiple layers of things going on there in that commentary, including, I think it's important to pick up, mm-hmm. uh, this notion that um, Osaka is somehow more demure. And I'm not sure that that stands to reason. So, of course, what we were watching was a demonstration of anger by Serena Williams and a complicated display of anger. So I think putting it under the rubric of anger alone without looking at what was happening inside that anger does it a bit of an injustice. There was frustration there as well. There was frustration, there was sadness, there was disappointment, there was a sense of injustice and hurt. There were a lot of things held in that frame of anger. Um, but but I think to, to, to say Osaka in some way uh, demonstrates sort of the way that women were um, less able to speak up in the 1970s is not factually correct either. So Osaka was not in the frame. And I think it plays into all kinds of stereotypes about Asian women, right? Mm. So I don't, I think it's really important as we have this conversation to think about how we talk about people of different races and how we, how the tropes are always present. This notion of implicit bias is always there. uh, And it's important to be able to talk about those things, frankly. So we don't have to hold up Serena Williams' anger as a demonstration of something fantastic and sort of current and modern and at the same time demean Osaka because I'm not sure that that's what was going on. She just wasn't the subject. And Mm. we focus so much on the race of Osaka as opposed to the age and the fact that she's at a very different point in her career. She's 20 years old. Yeah, so this potential of confidence to... uh, articulate your sentiments is completely Absolutely. different than someone in you know in her mid to late 30s mm. yeah the, Absolutely know, yeah go, go and ahead. I think this tendency to create a, a a good versus a bad guy is is something um that again when Serena sort of um you know diffused the tension at the end what she was partly doing is saying we don't have to be seen as enemies in this situation We have a bit of that audio where Serena actually played the peacemaker in that trophy ceremony I just want to tell you guys, she played well, and this is her first Grand Slam. Um, And I know, I know you guys were here rooting, and I was rooting too, but let's make this the best moment we can, and we'll we'll get through it, but um, let's give everyone the credit where credit's due, and let's not boo anymore. We just, we're gonna, we're gonna get through this, and let's be positive, so. Um, congratulations, Naomi. No more booing. <laughs> um. So that's Serena Williams asking the crowd not to boo and being really nurturing to Osaka. So, I mean, we're going to get to the cartoon in a bit, but it does raise a question about the moments that you choose to depict in cartoons because there was a range of stuff going on and it wasn't just a smash racket in, mm. in the heat of the moment. Now, Tracy, Harold's son, cartoonist Mark Knight, did say the cartoon was a depiction of Serena Williams having a tantrum. From a sporting perspective, is that what you saw? Did you see a tantrum? 
Uh, no, I didn't. And, you know, I've, I've followed Serena's career quite closely over the couple of decades that she's been competing. And, you know, she she has been, um, she has suffered uh, this kind of event before. And, and I think it just kind of, all of those moments where she'd suffered at this particular tournament before, where she'd been blatantly ripped off previously, um, had all sort of just bubbled to the surface in this particular event. And I was just reminded of, um, you know, Claudia Rankin, the fantastic American poet who wrote a really um, extensive piece on Serena in The New Yorker um, some years ago, in fact, and, and talking about this rage that people talk about and black rage and, and how that's depicted. And yet the evidence will tell you that most times Serena is not acting that way. And yet you would think by some of the commentary and the cartoon and everything else that this is all you get from Serena Williams. And it's just not the case. It's a stereotype type that's been put on her unfairly. Now let's recap about the satirical cartoon by Herald Sun cartoonist Mark Knight that kicked this story to another level of outrage. If you haven't seen it, you can easily do a quick web search. It was condemned by US media and many high-profile people, writer JK Rowling, Bernice King, the daughter of Martin Luther King, Jesse Jackson, the comedian Kathy Griffin, just to name a few. On the opposing side, the cartoon was defended and reprinted by the Herald Sun, who are standing by the cartoonist Mark Knight. And Mark Knight spoke earlier this week to ABC News' Joe O'Brien. When I watched the US Open, I, I was sitting there like everybody else, and I saw the world number one tennis player have a huge hissy fit and spit the dummy. So basically, that's what the cartoon was about. It was about just her poor behaviour on the court, nothing to do with gender or racism at all. But to a lot of people, that clearly looks to, to uh, be very um, reminiscent of the Jim Crow style, which is back in the 1830s when a white guy put black um, paint on his face and um, danced around making fun of African-American people. And there were caric caricatures drawn in that period that are associated with that period. So you had no intention whatsoever of being reminiscent of that. I have uh, absolutely no knowledge of, of those cartoons or that period. I think what's happening here is people are just making stuff up. Uh, the cartoon was just about Serena on the day having a tantrum. Uh, that's basically it. A few days beforehand, I'd actually drawn a cartoon of Australian Nick Kyrgios and his bad behaviour at the uh, US Open. So I'm not targeting Serena. I mean, Serena is a champion. I drew her as, a, as an African-American woman. She's powerfully built. Uh, she wears these uh, outrageous costumes when she plays tennis. She's interesting to draw. I drew her as she is, as an African-American woman. Okay, that's cartoonist Mark Knight uh, defending the cartoon. Let's talk a little bit about this tradition of cartoons that has been alluded to in the interview with Joe O'Brien. Associate Professor Claire Corbold is a historian at Deakin University with an expertise in U.S. social and cultural history and African-American history. She's got a book called Becoming African-Americans, and she's here to give us some context. Welcome, Claire. Hi, Bibley. Hi. So let's talk about that gap in knowledge and fill that in a little bit for our audience. So a brief, there was a brief summary there about Jim Crow-style cartoons. Tell us more about them. Well, they start, as um, your interviewer earlier in the week noted, in about the 1830s in the United States, just as slavery is ending in the North. And once you don't have a system of slavery, and then 35 years later after the Civil War, there's no slavery in the South any longer. You need a, a new way to control people who are going to provide a cheap labour force. And one of the ways that that um, took place in the United States, as it, around in other places in the world as well, imperial places around the world, was to demean the group of people being um, suppressed. But there was a distinct style of the depictions. There were, there was. And in the United States, that... Um, you know, th that's what this cartoon but is. But what did the that big, look like? So, yeah. the, well, it's associated with minstrelsy, which is a blackface performance on stage in which originally white men and then later African-Americans exaggerate the features of African-Americans um, as perceived primarily in the white imagination, okay. which is, you know, and, and that's what we're hearing with Mark Knight as well, the exaggerated features of what he sees as the exaggerated features of Serena Williams. So when he says she's powerfully built, for example... He probably doesn't realise that Naomi Osaka is two inches taller than Serena Williams is. Mm. Maria Sharapova, who in her memoir talks about how tall 
repeatedly how tall Serena Williams is, is five inches taller than Serena Williams. I know, it's a surprise. It actually, I mean, talk about unconscious bias. I work on this and have done for 20 years, and that surprised me. Wow. Yeah. Now, when you hear that interview with Mark Knight, Claire, where he says, you know, as an Australian cartoonist, he's not aware of this American context, and I'm sure a lot of Australian people aren't necessarily aware of the specifics of Jim Crow-era cartoons, is that necessarily a defence that the logic follows, that therefore if you don't know about this racist history, then therefore something that you produce, an illustration that might resemble that style, arguably might not, is necessarily racist? I, I have a few thoughts on that. One of, one of them is, if that's your profession, or any of us in any profession, we have a duty of care to one another. If you want to live in a just society, you don't make racist cartoons. If you're a cartoonist, you need to know that history. What about the argument that these sorts of satirical cartoons are necessarily always caricatures? Well, I would say um, to that there's an Australian history to that too, which he might know better if someone had asked. So there's a long history of um, satirical cartoons and caricature of Aboriginal people as well that was uh, made to a different effect. So, for example, in the interwar years, as missions and um, protection, the, the... was at its peak, um, so and the idea that Aboriginal people were dying out was at or would die out was at its peak. Cartoonists in Australia depicted even women with babies as old people. So there's a they're caricatured terribly with the pendulous breasts, always naked and aged, as though they won't last long. So there's a history of that in Australia as well. And the other peak of cartooning of Aboriginal people in Australia in conservative newspapers especially is in the 1990s after the Mabo decision. So there's a there's a it's a it's a really rich history and I'm very skeptical of Mark Knight not knowing it, but I don't think it matters in the end because the harm caused is what matters and he should have been aware of that. And if he wasn't as Ben said earlier, he is now and he should be apologizing and the and the paper should be doing the same. I think there's definitely the the racial and racist aspect of the uh, actual drawing itself, but I think there's also an undercurrent there of a very Australian mentality that you're supposed to not be offended, that you're supposed to just have this, uh, that everyone is just expected to pick yourself up and shake it off and that that's part of the Australian mentality. To be Australian is to not let things get to you. And that, for me, I thought was another interesting aspect to the racism in the ad. Sasanke, you... Cartoon, not ad. Sasanke, you are a fairly new... I guess, migrant to Australia. What have you noticed about uh, depictions of race in the media um, as regards to, to black people? And what have you noticed about how it differs from, from other countries, for example? Well, definitely, I think Mark Knight is a serial offender when it comes to this. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm not convinced by the... I, I, I mean, I think... I guess we have to take see... him at his word. I mean, there's nothing else that we can do, though. But yes, go on. The real issue with the with the way people talk about race often in Australia is the sense that um, I think that someone just made the point that you 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 should that everyone's making jokes about it, and that it's just you should be able to laugh it off. And I think part of the problem with laughing it off is that there is um, something in there that we need to address. So what is the root of the joke? And if the root of the joke derives from a racist depiction or from the sense that there's something funny about other people, other people being people of color, then we have to address that. Mm. Um, And that's often the kind of elephant in the room is that the joke uh, sort of centers around something that isn't being named. That's right. Why do you think that's so hard? And um, Sasanke and Tracy, welcome your thoughts here. I think that it's... um, I think it shouldn't be hard, but I think it, it's hard because there is this defensiveness around talking about race uh, and racism in Australia. Um, and perhaps it comes from the, the long racist history um, in this country. Um, I really do wish people would let their guard, guards down a little bit more in these conversations. Mm. Um, when I talk to people face to face and have these conversations, I often... I'm very conscious to try to pepper the conversations with humor because it allows people in. Um, but I also know that I, when I'm doing that, I'm doing the hard emotional work of trying to draw somebody out so that they are able to. So that they're to comfortable talking about this thing. So to make people comfortable. And what, I think what you saw happening with Serena was that she 
in a moment of anger, you aren't trying to make people comfortable. You are simply stating it as it is. And I think people have real difficulty when you state it as it is. Claire, we're hearing about attitudes and defences when it comes to racism. One of the defences, of course, is that we didn't know this history. You've just pointed out that a lot of this history goes back to, say, the 1990s post-Marbo. That isn't that long ago. So why are Australians repeatedly and constantly referring back to we don't know when we have our own traditions of these kinds of cartoons. It's that endless claim to innocence. I mean, it is, it's, yeah. yeah. And it's very effective um, that those predominantly white men, but lots of white women as well, have managed to seize so much of our public um, space about talking about race. And I have felt, particularly this week, but in general, a real nostalgia actually for that moment in the ni- early 1990s when Paul Keating made the the Redfern speech, Mabo was decided in the High Court. Those decades of activism by Aboriginal um, people in Australia over land rights were finally coming to fruition. And then, of course, Howard was elected and things, it feels to me, have been going backwards since. And you know, I've been calling it the aggrieved white person syndrome, mm-hmm. which, I, you know, that sense that something is being taken away from them um, motivates people to defend themselves in this way, I think. You know, yeah. I think the other the other thing is that people... people I, I know this, I'm married to an Indigenous man mm. and I know when we walk down the street, um, people often stop him and, and talk to him and they want to know how to make this better and what can they do. Um, so I know that there's this great swathe of Australian people uh, that, that do want to get rid of racism and the problem is they just... I don't think they know how to identify it from the start. And and the issue is, I think what, what the other panellists are saying is so true. Uh, we need to have humour here. We need to have gentleness. I mean, we look at the Adam Good story, an Australian of the mm. year. Mm. Everybody loved him. He was mm. fantastic until he became vocal. Mm. Mm. Uh, Tracy, and then suddenly everything turned. Mm. Tracy, as someone who works in the media yourself, I'm wondering if you have any um, kind of thoughts on how the Australian media has reported on this. For instance, when you look at the US media. Uh, The Washington Post is a newspaper that just labelled this cartoon as racist. No quote marks, no arguably racist. Australian media is far more reluctant (laughs) to do that. Is that, is there a discrepancy there and why does that exist? Look, I think it exists because of racism. <laughs> um, and and Americans have been talking about this openly for a very long time. Um, it, it's foremost in, in people's minds. You've got vocal, you know, civil rights um, historians. You've got people that have fought for the civil rights movement. Earlier today, uh, I did an interview with a, a man called Raymond Arsenault. He's a civil rights historian from Florida. He's just written a book on Arthur Ashe, who is one of the greatest um, tennis players and, and civil rights Um, campaigners. And uh, Arthur died um, in the early 90s. But I asked him what Arthur would have made of watching this instant um, with Serena Williams on Arthur Ashe Court. Let's remember that. Mm. And he said Arthur would have been proud and he would have been upset at the way the referee had the umpire handled the situation. And I think looking back, people will see this as one of Serena's greatest moments. Now, you will never hear that analysis from anybody in the media here in Australia, because that is just not how how most people perceive that moment. Um, and yet, you know, the, the commentary from the US would, would generally support that. Uh, and it's just completely at odds with what we see here. And I, I can't help thinking it gets back to that sort of angry black person syndrome that we have. You know, we, we're fine as long as you're quiet and, and we can discuss things nicely or have a bit of a joke and you don't take offence. Uh, but the minute you do, um, our, our backs are up. So, Sasanke, let me um, come to you with the last question. What do you think it will take for there to be a more open conversation about race in the media and less fear of declaring things as racist? I think um, it will take diversifying the, the, the quality and range of voices that are in the media. I think there is really a dominance of a particular kind of hysterical white male voice um, that likes to take up space in conversations about race. And I think it would be really fantastic to have um, not just um, more diverse people of color, but more diverse white men. There are many white men out there who have far 
sort of more generous viewpoints, um, more thoughtful viewpoints on these issues. Uh, and so I think what it, it does is often creates this impression that all white men, right? And I, you know, I, on behalf of the white men who I cannot speak on behalf of, I would like to say, like, not all white men. Very generous um, like of you. It, it must feel really bad to be like a good white guy um, having, you know, a lot of these egregious statements made on your behalf. So I think it will take um, having more diverse white male voices in the media talking more sense. Okay. Tracy Holmes is an ABC News radio broadcaster and host of the sports panel show The Ticket, which is available as a podcast. Claire Corbold is an associate professor of African-American history at Deakin University. Her book is called Becoming African-Americans. And Sisonka Emisamang, writer and author of the memoir Always Another Country. Thank you for your insights. Thank you for joining us to talk about this Mark Knight cartoon. He has said that he has no awareness of the Jim Crow cartoons. Um, maybe he can listen to this podcast. We'll put links to their work on the Stop Everything program page, and it's time to talk about brownies now. Kate Evans, some book reviews drive me mad. Listen to this. A canonic tour de force at the interstices of hope and desire. What is that? <laughs> or Cassie McCullough, what about luminous prose with resonant rhapsodic revelations? Oh, my God. Find out about new books in a way you can understand. Me and bought the books that I read. This was book the, so unreserved. One of the most energetic characters. The Bookshelf, every week with me, Kate Evans. And me, Cassie McCullough, on RN or via the ABC Listen app. Hey, Benjamin Law, Lauren Rosewarren. Let's move to some more joyous things. Like recently, I've been watching a lot of this. My little pony, my little pony. Ah, my little pony. I used to wonder what friendship could be. Wow. I know. Isn't it lovely? My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic is the fourth-generation reboot of the My Little Pony series from the 1980s. Do you remember those toy ponies? Did you have one? Oh, yeah. Did Mine you was... smell it? had that plastic sweet like cupcake smell? Yes. yes. Yes, lovely. That takes me back. Anyway, the current series debuted in 2010 and centers around a bookish unicorn. Her name is Princess Twilight Sparkle and her friends, each one representing the so-called elements of harmony, um, honesty, loyalty, kindness, generosity, laughter, and magic. It's based on ancient Chinese wisdom, Benjamin, as they all learn about the magic of friendship, like when Twilight realizes how much her new friends mean to her. The spirits of these five ponies got us through every challenge you threw at us. You still don't have the sixth element. The spark didn't work. But it did. A different kind of spark. I felt it the very moment I realized how happy I was to hear you, to see you, how much I cared about you. The spark ignited inside me when I realized that you all are my friends. Not low-key at all. The first four, <laughs> the first four series of my, seasons of My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic, are on Netflix, which is where I've been watching the show. Which begs the question, Beverly Wang. Why? Why have you been watching Look, this? I, I prefer to think of myself as a supervisor to the primary watching <laughs> you individual. Need own, you need to own your fandom, Bev. Okay, yeah, I like it. Fine. Um, I... I've been quite pleasantly surprised by, you know why I like it? Because mm. I'm surprised that it's good. Oh. L low base. But right? what were your expectations coming into it? I, well, the 80s ponies were very forgettable, I think. Mm. I, there was an animated show. I cannot remember a single line or story or anything I just remember that. there were girls who were pony girls and I was not one of them. Yeah, exactly. Like, not that interesting. This one is interesting. Like, it's still very pink and high pitch and cute. But if there was going to be a Netflix category, it would be strong female characters and ensemble cast and storylines centered around problem solving that emphasize the value of friendship and book learning. So it's very female centered. You know, they have their agency. And the female centered is why we're talking about it today, because yeah. there is all the incarnations of the show are unambiguously targeted towards girls. Yes. So what happens if you are a male fan? And this is where we've got this subculture called bronies. Ben explained it before, bros who are into ponies. And they're not exclusively um, boy. There are female some fans. Girl there are yeah. there are some girl bronies, whether they embrace the label or not. And they've created their own subculture, very much driven by 
the internet. It's an internet age mm-hmm. event and community. Mm-hmm. Now, there are My Little Pony Friendship is Magic fan conventions all over the world. I'm so curious to find out what bronies get out of the series. Tyson Cluse is the chair of a brand new convention in Adelaide called AliCon, which kicks off next weekend. Tyson also goes by the brony name Typhoon Speed. Tyson, welcome to Stop Everything. Thank you so much for having me on the program, Thanks guys. Thanks for coming on. First obvious question, how did you become a brony? My story of getting into the brony fandom is a little bit different to, to a lot out there. I was essentially just browsing YouTube, as you do, um, and I, I found a video from Teen Direct from the Fine Brothers, and they did a, a reaction to bronies and, and what, um, I guess, different teenagers thought of it. And their reactions were, were fairly negative. I, I didn't really think a lot of it, kind of just watched it, let it go. Um, a few months later, I really wanted to, to kind of make some friends, get involved in a community, and I couldn't really find what I wanted to do. And then I saw the Bronies video pop up again, and I thought, you know what, let's give this a shot, watch the first two episodes, and the rest is history. Mm. Wonderful. So, like, what did you get out of the show? For me, I really liked the storytelling. So it's got very deep character traits that you can really, really relate to. So as you mentioned before, the main six... Um, they all have different character traits that, that are either relatable and they're all very different, but they all get along as well as just the overarching theme of fantasy um, as well as slice of life. Um, then you go into stuff like music and animation and that that's really well developed, especially for what is a traditional or no, no, a, a typically a kid's show. Is there something that the show is offering to you that you can't get elsewhere in popular culture? Is it Was it filling a void for you? I think at least when when MLP came out, it was very much a watching a show that is family friendly and it wasn't negative, but it was still well written and, and again, deep character development that, that really kind of hit home with me. There wasn't a lot of kind of happy um, shows. When, when you watch the show, when you get to an episode, there's always a resolution to the story and there's always that really nice buzz and that really nice feeling that I don't think you get out of a lot of shows. You know, we watch a lot of negative media um, and, and storytelling, so it was just a nice change. Hmm. Now, Tyson, you heard before, Beverly has been watching it with her daughter and uh, they're having a great time together. There's a there's an intended demographic there, especially of uh, girls, I imagine, but you're an adult man so I'm wondering can you shed some light on this growing community of bronies why are adult men in particular drawn to this show and is there any stigma around that for sure. So when the show was created, it was in at least its fourth generation. Um, it was developed by Lauren Faust, who worked on Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends, Powerpuff Girls, etc. Um, so she really wanted to kind of make the show available to the younger audience, but also make it that parents could watch it with their children without you know kind of having to beat their brains out over over hard messages, etc. So as that was kind of developed in that way, it was kind of bound to happen that you know, adults are going to watch it on their own, they're going to find it, and they're going to enjoy it. I think it kind of relates to something similar to you look at animations such as Spongebob, which again is typically a children's animation, but it's still popular amongst amongst adults. In terms of the stigma around it, um, definitely there, there is that kind of why you're watching a show for little girls sort of sort of stigma. And I guess it's that sort of... My Little Pony comes with, with a lot of baggage from the 80s. The, the, the 80s show was very female centric very uh, very feminine um, didn't have any character development didn't have any deep storytelling and then once you watch the fourth generation you really start to open up and, and understand why so Tyson there's a documentary focused on the male fans called Bronies the extremely unexpected adult fans of My Little Pony Lauren you actually show this in one of your classes don't you yeah I mean I, I teach gender studies and I think it's a really interesting um, clash of things such as values parenting gender sexuality all in one subculture. Yeah, and here's a scene from the documentary. It's Lyle, he's an American teenager, talking to his mother about coming out as a brony. He said, what would you think, Mom, if I said I really liked My Little Pony? And he'd been joking about this for a long time. I was talking about how it was a good show, but her initial reaction was a bit like, eh. He said, I'd be worried about you, Lyle. And it made me kind of nervous, like she wouldn't really accept it if I was serious. I didn't think he was serious. And so I told her it was a joke. I was very nervous about my dad finding out. He might be thinking that I'm gay or a man-child or something. That's Lyle expressing so much anxiety. Um, Almost like, Ben, did it sound almost like a coming out story to you? Yeah, it makes me wonder what's harder, coming out as queer or coming out as a brony? (laughs) and, And just... 
like to your to your to your comment about masculinity, Lauren. I mean, just for liking a television show which is not aimed at you specifically, to but have that issue, level of anxiety, it? it's so intense. But this idea that it is targeted towards girls, and that we're a culture that still sees girl culture as low culture, and that if you're a man who likes that culture, something must be wrong with but you. Is it that it's low culture, or just that it's completely not meant for your gender? Well, I think we demonise femininity in mm. the sense that girls are okay if you like Die Hard, for example. Yeah. But the, the reverse is not the same. Men are then framed as effeminate. You know, even Lyle mentioned this question of, will my parents think I'm gay? As though there's the culture that you like is somehow at all relevant to who you want to have sex with. So, Tyson, how, how do you see this playing out in the Brony community? Do you know people, have friends who have had to struggle with even announcing that they like the show? I think it it ranges for every every pony out there. So essentially, it could be someone who's really proud of it, and they'll just say, "Look, I'm into this show. I don't care what anyone else thinks." But then there are other people who go, "I don't want to be seen wearing a pony shirt. I don't want to be known at the meetups. I don't want to have it anywhere on my Facebook." It really depends. There is a lot of anxiety, and we call like anyone who doesn't want to be known as known as a closet brony. Um, so that that definitely does exist amongst the fandom. Can you tell me more about the brony culture itself? I mean, obviously, like we said before, there's a convention coming up. But when you hang out with each other, is it on an online space? Do you meet up in person? And what do you talk about? Is it about comparing, like, favourite ponies and why? It could be really anything. So we, we go anywhere from, from just chatting on forums and, and Discord servers and Facebook groups where we discuss what did you think of the latest episode, who's best pony, as well as we share our creativity. So we create art for the show, music, custom animation, storytelling. Mm. Um, we write our own fan fiction. And then you take that into the real world. So sometimes we do meetups, whether it be let's just meet in the park and have a picnic or let's go to local stores and get pony merchandise. And then you take the biggest step, which is going to conventions and you start to meet voice actors from the show. And that's really this nice little hub where the whole loving and love and tolerance of the fandom comes together. Is there any uh, shared qualities? You mentioned love and tolerance, shared qualities amongst the demographic or the subculture that you see in other people and that you recognise, yeah, we like My Little Pony, but we also have these other shared attributes? I think the brony community, especially what I've noticed amongst the Australian brony community, it tends to attract the more geeky sort of culture, um, sort of your anime fans, your your computer um, your computer fans. People are into that, and I think that might just be as a result because initially to find the show, it generally was on message boards and forums and um, etc. But again, mostly that that sort of geeky community. But it, it does vary, and if someone does fall outside of that that sort of that sort of range, um, again, love and tolerate, and we'll accept them into the group. Tyson, this is sort of a sort of a off off base question, but I'm curious because you also go by another name, Typhoon Speed. Is there a rubric or a method to coming up with your pony name? It really varies for everyone. Um, I was actually chatting to a few people about this last night on, on, on best ways to come up with a pony name. Um, it could be just something you like. It could be just a term that you like. Um, generally, they fall into three categories, which is uh, either weather, food, or magical. Um, Not so first dog, like first street you lived in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <Different laughs> community, Lauren. Oh, Sorry. So for so for me, we had like on the show we had Rainbow Dash, and I had the nickname Typhoon as a child um, from from cricket um, when I was playing cricket um, due to my bowling speed. Um, and then I thought, well, let's adapt that. I got into the fandom. Let's adapt Typhoon. Let's add speed on the end. That works. Typhoon Speed is the pony name. And it has the weather connection. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, so it kind of just fit in really nicely. Um, Typhoon Speed, my character, my design at least, is a Pegasus, who's and Pegasi usually control the weather in, in the MLP universe, so it worked out really well. Uh, Tyson Close, a local brony. A lot of people might be listening to this and thinking, I haven't been exposed to the show, um, I'm listening to this, and the subculture sounds fascinating, but is it really that big? Can you give us a sense of the scale of community, both in Australia and internationally? For sure. So Australia has had uh, pony conventions in the past. We had PonyCon AU running from 2013 to 2015. Um, but then you start to look at different conventions around the world. So there are conventions uh, throughout Europe as well as North America. Um, the biggest convention uh, is BronyCon, which happens in Baltimore, Maryland every single year. Um, the biggest one they ever had was in 2015, where they peaked over 10,000 attendees uh, attending oh. BronyCon. Incredible. So Tyson, it sounds like you get a lot of joy and happiness from not just the show, but being part of this community. How happy does it make you? 
It definitely it definitely puts a smile on my face. Um, it, it's no, it's about the show mostly. You know, you watch the show, you feel happy, but as well as knowing that the community's got your back. If you're wondering what do you think of this character, what do you think of this storytelling, or if you want to make something and you can send it, um, because of the lessons that the show teaches, which is love and tolerance and, and acceptance, you can send whatever you've created to the community and the community will generally give you feedback and they'll be very, very kind about it. That's lovely. Um, Typhoon Speed, otherwise known as Tyson Clues, thank you so much for sharing what makes you happy about the Brony community with us on Stop Everything. Tyson is a Brony and the chair of the new My Little Pony Friendship is Magic convention coming up in Adelaide called AlleyCon. You can find it online or a link on the Stop Everything page. Now, very apropos to the show and spring cheer, here's a song from My Little Pony called Winter Wrap-Up. Thanks, Tyson. Thank you so much. Three months of winter coolness and awesome holidays. We've kept our hoopsies warm at home, time off from work to play. But the food we've stored is running out and we can't grow in this cold. And even though I love my boots, this fashion's getting old. The time has come to welcome spring and all things warm and green. But it's also time to say goodbye. It's winter, we must clean. How can I help? I'm new, you see. What does every pony do? How do I fit in without magic? I haven't got a clue. Winter wrap up, winter wrap up. Let's finish our holiday cheer. Winter wrap up, winter wrap up. Cause tomorrow oh. spring is here. Hear that on our end. But sometimes we just need things that make us happy. And now we're into September. It's time to shake off the winter blues and embrace spring. Just just like the ponies, just right? Just like the ponies in Equestria, loving life and learning about friendship. Now, next week, all the hub programs, our big happy family, will be featuring spring stories. And so for our part, we'll be talking about pop culture that brings you joy. Mm. doesn't have to make you feel hysterically happy, but if it does, we want to hear from you. It can simply make you feel soothed or energized or like a pick-me-up. So we'd really like to hear from you, be it something that you watch or read or listen to. What do you turn to when you want a warm pop culture hug? What makes you... What brings you joy and makes you feel renewed? We'd love to hear your voice memos. Just a minute or two. You can send them to the hub at abc.net.au, the hub at abc.net.au. If you are not sure how to use your smartphone recording app to record a voice memo and send it to us, just send us an email with your number and ask for help to record a voice memo. Help, voice memo in the subject line, and one of the team will give you a call. Now, one of our RN colleagues told us what's making him happy lately. That's Jonathan Green. Uh, Look, social media is a thing that I spend a lot of time faffing about in, and not much in that gives me a great deal of pleasure. But sometimes, and this just happened today, a little tweet came through from a friend and it was a link to a video of a song that I haven't heard for so long. And it's a beautiful song and it just, uh, it filled me with joy. There's no other word for it. It was a beautiful thing. That was a joyful moment. And there I was, again, listening to The Saints and that song, Simple Love. How wonderful, how joyous. Yeah, it can sound a little bit like that. Thanks mm. for that blast from the past from Jonathan Green. You know, I agree with Jonathan that social media can really get us down. Oh, yeah. I agree with Jonathan that the Saints. We need to hear more of the Saints. <laughs> yeah, I know. When social media gets us down, I feel like it's time to take a break. But do not take a break before tweeting at Ben or Lauren or ABC RN The Hub or me to tell us about your pop culture happy fix. A lot of people have already sent me messages about the Japanese reality show Terrace House and why it takes them to a happy comforted place. The email again, thehub at abc.net.au, thehub at abc.net.au, or you can go to the Stop Everything program page, and there's actually a little message there that shows you how to record a voice memo. 
Um, but Ben, just give us a taste of what brings you joy, hey? Okay, I'll tell you one thing that's bringing me joy of late. FX's new series Pose, which is a drama series, premiered on Foxtel's Showcase channel this week, finally. And I say finally because it's been over three months since the acclaimed drama aired in the US. Get with it, Foxtel. Anyway, this is one of the most acclaimed TV dramas of 2018 already, and it focuses on the 1980s New York ballroom scene, where teams are sorted into houses, complete with various catwalk contests based on certain themes. Uh, Typically, contestants were poor queer people of colour who lived in their houses, who were like their surrogate family, and uh, the scene was immortalised in the iconic documentary Paris is Burning, which you can watch on Netflix. It got mainstream attention through Madonna's Vogue, which you can watch on YouTube, and is also the inspiration for RuPaul's Drag Race, which won a bunch of Emmys this week. You can watch that on Stan. Yes. So um, Poe's launch in Australian Foxtel this week is the latest show from Ryan Murphy. He's the guy behind Glee, American Horror Story and Scream Queens. And it also features the largest cast of transgender LGBTIQ actors in regular roles ever. And you'll also spot, you know, randomly James Vanderbeek from Dawson's Creek and Kate Mara from House of Cards in there. Um, Transgender activist Janet Mock and transparent producer Our Lady J are on the writing credits already been picked up for a second season. Here's some of the trailer. How does someone as talented as you wind up dancing for a whole bunch of junkies? I want to be a star. You ever consider joining a house? What do you mean? Well, a house is a family you get to choose. I have bigger dreams of performing at some ball. I have nowhere else to go. Come in. It's that white boy again. Is this your first time doing something like this? Whispering love. What exactly is a ball? Balls are a gathering of people who are not welcome to gather anywhere else. Darling, the champagne is burned. So I've been able to get my hands on some preview episodes of Pose, and I'm already confident enough to say this is some of the best TV you'll see this year. Much has been made of the fact that it's groundbreaking, a lot of transgender talent behind the camera, in front of camera, and on the surface it might sound bleak because this is a show about marginalised people at the height of the AIDS crisis in America, life and death stakes, but it's really joyous and life-affirming. A lot of great costumes, and for those of you who watch the show and you're worried, why didn't it get any Emmy nominations? Don't worry. The series pilot premiered in the US just a few days after the cutoff, so watch out for it in the 2019 Emmy nominations. It might make history again. Lauren Rose Warren, on the subject of joy, you are our esteemed resident contrarian on our show. And I know you approach pop culture from a different direction, but is there anything you want to tease us with about what brings you joy or cheers you up or gives you a pick-me-up? Look, I wouldn't choose to watch pop culture for a pick-me-up, but if I was to go down the television route of easy listening TV, Mm. Golden Girls is going to be my pick. I think it stood the test of time and gives and still feels fresh, this idea, really fresh in the... if we consider, we were just having a conversation a couple of weeks ago about the sort of weird old-fashioned presentations of older women's sexuality in book club. Oh, yes. Mm. Golden Girls still looks fresh, 30-odd years old. Older women still sexually active and still quite frank and which appeals to me, incredibly sarcastic. And making that pony connection, strong female characters in an ensemble cast, focusing yeah. on the bonds of friendship. The, the link is, is obvious. It's extraordinary. Um, we look forward to hearing more from you, Lauren Roseward, unpacking your uh, pop culture soothing music of Golden Girls and Ben Law. I'm sure you'll bring us something else interesting. And, of course, you, our dear listeners, please contact us, the hub at abc.net.au, the hub at abc.net.au. We can't say that email address enough, can we, Ben Lauren? No, it's the hub at abc.net.au. I There's mean, never I, enough. I'd love to hear why other people might like the Golden Girls and if they have any theories as to why it hasn't dated alongside other shows that I think date really, yeah, really Yeah, I quickly. mean, we were talking about this before the show. We're expected to hate Friends now and all these other shows because they do look dodgy. 20 years old. Golden Girls doesn't. Stays fresh, the fresh. Golden Girls. Forever Cheesecakey fresh. <laughs> well, it was interesting growing up watching the Golden Girls. I thought people were meant to have a full cheesecake in their fridge at all times. And I really... Did you feel betrayed when you I found out really that wasn't actually the case? I just really was betrayed by my parents that we never had a full cheesecake in I our fridge. I just think the show taught me how to grow up and be sort of savage and, and sarcastic. I'm, and it was my first lesson in Who that. is your favourite Golden Girl? Of course, B. Arthur. Dorothy. Yeah. But also so wonderful to see it looping back to 
to the movie, the Netflix movie that we talked about last week to all the boys that I've loved because those characters are watching, watching Golden it. Girls. They didn't grow up with it, but that's their comfort viewing too. It's their beautiful, smooth FM, but with quite a lot of bites still. I mean, these were people that were really, really ahead of the curve. They addressed AIDS and HIV. They addressed um, coming out as gay mm-hmm. in the 80s and early 90s, which on a sitcom, on a And net- through the safety, network. though, of watching people who are kind of like your grandparents, but not so. Yes. So anyway, send us your spring joy, the hub at abc.net.au. Lauren Rose, Warren, Benjamin Law, it's been a treat. Thanks, Until Beverly next Wang. week, let's do it next week. Bye.